0: Hey, what up, seekers? Welcome back. In this week's video, we're going to be looking at some comparisons between Eastern and Western philosophy. In the last part of the series, we spoke about some Eastern and Greek pantheisms, and I thought it might be interesting this week to take a look at some point of historical and conceptual contact between these two great civilizations of ancient Greece and ancient India. We tend to think of East and West as two very distinct categories, to the extent that when people start to make comparisons between East and Western thought and thinkers, people can get quite up in arms and hot under the collar. Now, there may be very good reason for being suspicious about the enterprise of East-West philosophical comparisons because they do have an unfortunate history of being conducted from missionizing Eurocentrist or colonialist perspectives. But just because something has been done poorly in the past does not preclude us from doing it better in the present or the future. No one or very few would make use of dentistry or much of the medical industry if that was the case. But what we can try and do is to learn from the mistakes of the past and to try and move forward and improve upon it as a collective. It is my contention that the east-west divide relies on a somewhat antiquated essentialist perspective, as if there was some essentially and fundamentally unbridgeable difference between the East and West and their thought and thinkers. But just as on a compass, the reference to East and West have no true independent measurement, but are simply contingent upon the observer's point of view, relative both to where they place North, and to where they determine the starting meridian and ending points to be, and were we more precise with our language, we would have to say west or east of x if north is taken as y, showing the relative nature of these reference. It is my argument here that when we look a little closer at the points of contact and the supposed points of separation between east and west, we start to see the edges and boundaries begin to blur. And as those hard edges begin to blur away, I think we'll start to see that thinkers both east and west may be safely assumed under the collective category we call human. Humans all over this teeny tiny globe of ours a speck of blue dust hurling through space at a thousand miles an hour, through the vast empty cathedrals of space, contemplating this, oh, ever so short thing we call human life, which is over in the blink of a cosmic eye, trying to find wisdom and ways to live this teeny tiny moment in the most fulfilling, loving, meaningful, rewarding, and sometimes even, in just the most entertaining way. And often, the wisdom which they come up with through living life seem to be remarkably similar. And that is what we'll be looking at here today. To begin to test these categories of East and West and see if they really hold water, one could begin by asking, was the Indo-Greek Muryan Empire and her Emperor Ashoka, who converted to and spread Buddhism throughout his empire and beyond, Eastern or Western? Or was the Greco-Bactrian kingdom under King Menander I, who converted to Buddhism under the tutelage of Nagasena, a disciple of the Greek Buddhist monk Dhammaraksita, Eastern or Western. Was the Indo-Greek Kingdom established by Demetrius I of Bactria when he invaded India, Eastern or Western? Was Madhammaraksita a Greek Buddhist head monk and his 30,000 Buddhist monk students, whom he led from Alexandra to Sri Lanka, Eastern or Western? was the Kushan Empire and her Greco-Buddhist monk Lokaksema, the first to translate Buddhist scripture into Chinese, while bringing Buddhism to the Chinese city of Luoyang, Eastern or Western, was Bodhidharma, the legendary founder of Chan, later known as Zen Buddhism, and the progenitor of Shaolin Kung Fu, originating from Central Asia as he did, Eastern or Western, were the five monks from Gandhara, Afghanistan, who introduced Buddhism to Fuseng, most likely Japan, Eastern or Western were what may have been the very first statues depicting the Buddha carved in Greco form, Eastern or Western. But because it is philosophy, and mystical philosophy in specific, that we are most interested in here, we'll be looking at points of confluence, of common influence between Eastern and Western thinkers, between ancient Indian and ancient Greek philosophers and mystics, using these terms Eastern and Western henceforth as merely conventional categories. The ancient Aeonian Greek philosopher, known as the founder of Pythagoreanism, Pythagoras, was traditionally thought to have received his education in ancient Egypt, the Neo-Babylonian Empire, the Achaemenid Empire and Crete, with other ancient writers claiming that Pythagoras had studied with the Magi in Persia and even from the prophet Zoroaster himself, the founder of Zoroastrianism. The Phoenicians are reported to have taught Pythagoras arithmetic and the Chaldeans to have taught him astronomy. By the 3rd century BC, Pythagoras was also reported to have studied under the Jews of his time. The 3rd century surface Philostratus, 3rd century CE that is, claims that in addition to the Egyptians, which he had famously traditionally studied under, Pythagoras had also studied under the tutelage of Hindu sages in India. Iamblichus expands this list even further by claiming that Pythagoras had also studied with the Celts and the Iberians. We can already see this tendency emerging where a figure of great wisdom and antiquity is assumed not to have been able to have found all his wisdom alone or even in his own geographic confines, but had traveled far and wide and brought back the wisdom from the rest of the world. However, modern scholarship does agree that the culture of ancient Greece was heavily influenced by the surrounding cultures of the Levant and Mesopotamia. But moving into something a little more concrete. Clearchus of Soli was a Greek philosopher from the 3rd to 4th centuries BCE belonging to Aristotle's peripatetic school. He was born in Sully in Cyprus and he wrote extensively on Eastern cultures and is thought to have traveled to the Bactrian city of Kanom, Alexandria on the Oxus in modern-day Afghanistan to study the Indian religions being practiced there. And Clearchus wrote extensively on Oriental cultures from Israel to Persia to India and others. Clearchus writing about the connection between Eastern and Western thinkers in his book of education, hypothesized that the Gymnosophists, and we'll explain in a second who they were, were descendants of the Magi, the Zoroastrian priests and teachers. And Josephus, the 1st century Jewish historian in general, writing about a dialogue between Clearchus and his teacher Aristotle, has the philosopher saying that the Jews were the progeny of Indian philosophy. Some later philosophers from the 3rd century BCE, who may have been directly influenced by Eastern thought include the cynic philosopher Hegesius of Cyrene, whose bleak philosophical works share an affinity with the Buddhist pessimistic notion that life as most people live it is fundamentally constituent of suffering, that eudaimonia, human happiness and flourishing is fundamentally impossible to achieve and that the goal of life should rather be the avoidance of pain and sorrow. According to Cicero, Hegesius gained a reputation for inspiring many of his readers to kill themselves with his biting descriptions of deep human misery, which led to Hygesius being nicknamed the Death Persuader and his books and teachings being made illegal by Ptolemy Philadelphus II. In the year 326 BCE, Alexander the Great, all of about 30 years old, in his attempts to conquer the known world, makes it on one of his military expeditions to northwest India. And the brief encounter that the great conqueror Alexander would have while in India would turn out to be a pivotal moment in human history. It was a point where two great civilizations, the Greeks represented by Alexander and India, the place where he had come to conquer, intersected and left a mark on each other for the rest of history. There's all kinds of interesting anecdotes told about Alexander's arrival in India, many of them blurring the line between history and legend. Along with Alexander in his conquest traveled a handful of philosophers. One of them was one Secretus, a Greek historical writer and cynic philosopher, a disciple of Diogenes of Sina, the cynic philosopher, the man who lived in a barrel and hung out with the dogs, from whence he got his name Diogenes. One secretus is said by the historian and geographer Strabo to have learnt in India the following ideas, that nothing that happens to a person is good or bad, opinions being merely dreams, that the best philosophy is that which liberates the mind from both pleasure and grief. As Alexander's representative when Secretus had an ongoing discussion with a group of several gymnosophists, in whom Alexander displayed great interest, although they kept disobeying him and outwitting him. So who were these gymnosophists? The gymnosophists, literally the naked philosophers or naked wise men, was a name given by the Greeks to certain ancient Indian philosophers, who practiced and pursued an ascetic lifestyle to the point of regarding even food and clothing as superfluous and as detrimental to the purity of thought. Philo of Alexandria, writing at the turn of the millennia, writes of the gymnosophists, and among the Indians, there is the class of the gymnosophists, who in addition to natural philosophy, take great pains in the study of moral science likewise, and thus make their whole existence a sort of lesson in virtue. They are, in Philo's estimation, prudent and just and virtuous, and therefore truly free. Another author who writes of the Gymnosophists a little later, in the second century CE, is Clement of Alexandria, the Christian theologian and church father. Writing Philosophy, then, with all its blessed advantages to mankind, flourished long ago amongst the barbarians, diffusing its light among the nations, and eventually penetrated into Greece. Its hierophants were the prophets among the Egyptians, the Chaldeans amongst the Assyrians, the Druids amongst the Gauls the Suramanas of the Bactrians, the philosophers of the Celts, the Magi among the Persians, and among the Indians, the gymnosophists, and other philosophers of barbarous nations. One such gymnosophist was Kalanos. Kalanos was a philosopher from the Indian Taxila and a Hindu Brahmin who accompanied Alexander the Great and famously burnt himself alive in the presence of Alexander's army. Alexander persuaded Kalanos to accompany him and to stay with him as one of his teachers. It was from Calanus that Alexander came to know of Dandamus, the leader of the group of gymnosophists. What happened was that there were a group of gymnosophists who were causing some trouble to Alexander and stirring up the locals to rebel against him. So Alexander sent one Onesicratus to go and summon their leader Dandamus. Once Socrates heads into the forest at the command of Alexander where the philosophers were living and he finds Damdamus laying naked as they did on a bed of leaves near a spring of water, and he gives him the message from Alexander that, Alexander the Great, son of Zeus, has ordered you to come to him. He will give you gold and other rewards, but if you refuse, he may chop off your head. When Dandamus heard the message from One Secretus, he did not even so much as raise his head, and replied while still lying in his bed of leaves, God, the great king, is not a source of violence, but a provider of water, food, light, and life. Your king, who loves violence and is mortal, cannot be a god. Even if you take away my head, you cannot take away my soul, which will depart my god and leave this body like we throw away old garments. We, Brahmins, do not love gold nor fear death, so your king has nothing to offer which I may need. Go and tell your king, Dandanus therefore, will not come to you. If he needs Dandamus, he must come to me." Alexander, as the story goes, upon hearing Dandamnus' reply, commendably gets up from his royal encampment and heads into the forest to meet Dandamnus and sits down before him on the floor of the forest. Dandamnus asks him, Why have you come? Telling him that I have nothing to offer you, because we have no thought of pleasure or gold. We love God and despise death, whereas you love pleasure, gold, and kill people. You fear death and despise God. Alexander replies to Dandamnus, that he had heard his name from Calenus, and has come to learn wisdom from him. The ensuing witty, humbling, and wisdom giving conversation was recorded by the Greeks as the Alexander Damdamis colloquy. I'd like to imagine Damdamis as some sort of tripped out philosopher, lover of wisdom podcaster, who wittily lures famous people into his studio in the forest, for epic philosophical conversation, all the while naked, of course. Damdamis be like, Stay tuned for next week, When we'll be talking about navigating our work-life balance in times of crisis with Genghis Khan, followed next week by karma and cooking with the Buddha himself. I know i definitely subscribe. You can actually read all about this interaction in Richard Stoneman's The Legend of Alexander the Great. So, who else went on this great adventure of discovery, this journey to the East with Alexander the Great? Anaxarchus. Anaxarchus was a Greek philosopher from the school of Democritus who traveled together with Pyro, who may have been his student, together with Alexander to India. And it's here that we begin to see some elements of Indian thought beginning to leave its imprints on these Greek thinkers. According to Sextus Empiricus, a second century doctor and Pyronist philosopher, Anaxarchus, quote, compared existing things to a stage painting and supposed them to resemble the impressions experienced in sleep or madness. So Anaxarchus seems to have a view about the world where the world seems to be illusory, something akin perhaps to the Indian idea of Maya. Diogenes ascribes to Anaxarchus an attitude of apathia, a freedom from emotion, and eucolia, a contentedness. In a tragic but telling anecdote, Plutarch reports that Anaxarchus, once pontificating with Alexander, tells him about the possibility of there being an infinite number of worlds, causing Alexander to weep because he had not yet conquered even one. This brings us now to the central figure which I'd like to look at here, Pyro and his school of thought, Pyronism. Going back to our old source Diogenes Laertius, Diogenes goes on to tell us that in addition to Anaxarchus, his possible student, the philosopher Pyro, accompanied Alexander on his expedition to the east. And, according to Diogenes, Pyro, during his 18th month stay, was deeply influenced by the philosophies he encountered while in India and, upon his return to Greece, founded the philosophical school of Pyrrhonism, inspired by the philosophy he had encountered while abroad. And, in an ironic turn of history, centuries later, Pyrrhonism may have influenced the Buddhist philosopher Nagarjuna's Mahadyamaka philosophy in return. Now, although this is by no means uncontested, and far from a conclusive resolution, Many scholars argue that Pyrrhus' teachings, which become central in Greek philosophy in the form of Pyrrhonism and Skepticism, are based directly on Buddhism, arguing that the 18 months Pyrrhus spent in India was long enough for him to learn a foreign language, and that the key innovative tenets of Pyrrhus' thought were only to be found at the time in Indian philosophy and found nowhere in Greek thought. Here is when we're going to get into some ideas, so hold on to your seat. Eusebius, in his Preparatio Evangelica, quoting Aristotles, quoting the philosopher Timon, quoting his teacher Pyro, gives a summary of Pyro's philosophy in what becomes known as the Aristotles passage. And it goes like this. Whoever wants to live well, Eudaimonia, must consider these three questions. First, how are the pragmata, by nature, the ethical matters and affairs, Secondly, what attitude should we adopt towards these pragmata? And thirdly, what will be the outcome for those who have this attitude towards them? So Pyra is asking what is the nature of ethics, what is the stance that we should have towards a nature, and what will be the outcome of one who has that stance? And Pyra goes on to give us three characteristics, three fundamental characteristics of the pragmata. The first is that they are all in the Greek adiaphora, which means logically undifferentiatable. They are astathimta, they are unstable, unbalanced, and unmeasurable, and they are anapikrita, which means that they are unjudgeable, unfixed, and undecidable. According to Christopher Benchwick's analysis of the Aristocles passage, these three marks, the undifferentiatedness, the instability or unreasonableness, and the impermanence of nature, are strikingly similar to the Buddhist three marks of existence, anatta, selflessness, dukkha, unsatisfactoriness, and in impermanence. Astathmita, instability, corresponds to the buddhist notion of dukkha, the unsatisfactoriness, pain and suffering that lies at the base of reality. The dissatisfaction caused by us not realizing that everything is truly impermanent and without any essence, and if we were to let go of the notion of things having any lasting value and thinking that they could give us some sort of pleasure, then we may get rid of that suffering. But that is the buddhist idea of dukkha. The second doctrine of Anapakrita, impermanence, corresponding to the Indian Anika, the belief that all conditioned things are in a concentrated flux. Buddhism teaches that all physical and mental events are constantly coming into being and dissolving, and that human life embodies this flux in the process of aging and dying, and the repeated birth and death, the cycle of samsara as its own in Buddhism, and according to this doctrine, nothing lasts, and everything eventually decays back to nothingness. This is in contrast to the Buddhist idea of nirvana, the reality which is nikka, which has no change, death, or decay. adaphoria the third idea from the passage in Pyro, the undifferentiation, corresponds to the Buddhist idea of anatta, the belief that there is no stable, differentiable thing, no differentiable being called self, meaning that there is no I, me, or mine, and that the belief in self, in I, me, and mine, is the source of dukkha, is the source of suffering, the previous Buddhist idea which we mentioned. And to point out the even greater precision of the correspondence on this point, Sexus and Pericus, continuing the tradition of Pyro, argued that personhood could not be precisely defined. And he goes through the philosophical effort to debunk various definitions of human, of personhood, given by various philosophical schools of his day, by showing that all of them are mere speculation, and disagree with one another, and that they merely identify properties rather than the property holder, which should be the person itself, and that none of the definitions seem to include every human and exclude every non-human, which is the aim of a good definition. This debunking of personhood is remarkably similar, not just in content, but also in form, to the Buddhist arguments against the existence of personhood. As articulated by Nagarjuna in his fundamental verses on the Middle Way, where he denies any identifiable entity called person, arguing that the experiencing person cannot be established as itself existing. I know it's a bit of a trip to wrap one's head around, but the point simply here is that the arguments, both in style and in their idea that they're trying to express, have a super strong correlation between Pyro's intellectual descendant, Sextus Imperatus, and Nagarjuna, the Mahayana philosopher, and we will perhaps not see any of these arguments articulated in so striking a similar way until we get all the way to the modern period with the Scottish philosopher David Hume. So those are the three marks of Buddhism, which we see have a strong correspondence with the three points of existence pointed out by Eusebius as telling over the philosophy of Pyro. And it is the removal of delusion around these three marks of existence which causes an end to suffering, which becomes a central theme in the Buddhist Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Noble Path. Epoche. The Pyronists practiced a suspending of judgment called epoche in Greek, about any dogmatic beliefs, beliefs about things that could not be proven or disproven, as a way to reach their goal of ataraxia, which we will explain in a second. The Aristoteles passage that we were reading before from Eusebius, quoting Timon, quoting Pyro, continues, Therefore, neither our sense perceptions, nor are doxai, our beliefs, views, theories, tell us the truth or lie. So we certainly should not rely upon them. Rather, we should be a doxa story without belief. Aclinius, uninclined towards a view of either this side or that side, and Akradantoi, unwavering in our refusal to choose something to believe, saying about every single one, every single option of belief, that it is no more is than it is not, or both is and is not, or it neither is nor is not. I actually just noticed this now. This form of logic, called the Tetralima in Greek thought, which has the four corners of options, no more is than it is not, both is and is not, and neither is nor is not, corresponds to the Buddhist form of logic called Chatzaskati. We'll have to look into that, but it may be another interesting parallel between Greek and Indian philosophical thinking. Anyhow, the second half of this passage of Pyrrhus' thought is similar in many ways to Buddha's refusal to answer certain metaphysical questions, which he saw as non-conductive to the path of Buddhist enlightenment and reiterated by Nagarjuna in his idea of the intentional relinquishing of all views and beliefs. In Nagarjuna's own words, When one affirms being, there is a seizing of awful and vicious belief which arises from desire and hatred, and from that contentions arise. So Nagarjuna advocates one not taking any firm beliefs on any metaphysical issues, as we just saw in the second half of the passage of Pyro. This points to our next point of comparison, which is the shared objective between Buddhism and Pyronism. The Pyronists' ultimate goal was to achieve what they called ataraxia, a state of being untroubled and untouched by emotion and the world around them. This idea of ataraxia shares a high degree of commonality with the Buddhist goal, or non of nirvana, the state of being extinguished and put out of the otherwise endless circles of troubles, pains, and desire called samsara. As we can see, both Pyranisms and Nagarjuna's soteriologies, that is, their theories of salvation, their goals which they're aiming and striving for, are not only functionally similar in their aims of what they desire to achieve, and further similar again in the ways which they hope and strive to achieve their ultimate goals. But to take things one step further, they even share some very fundamental metaphysical points of commonality underpinning their respective aims of ataraxia and nirvana. Sextus Empiricus argued that nothing, intrinsically, is to be more desired or avoided, because the desirability or avoidability of anything depends entirely upon the given circumstances at hand And by realizing this, one can live their lives untroubled, neither being elated by the good nor depressed by the seemingly bad, but merely accepting each occurrence in life as necessary, liberating from the subjective beliefs that turn the raw, unjudged, valueless experience of reality, the pure phenomena, into what we perceive as good and bad. Now this is a metaphysical position that reality in and of itself is not good or bad, it's our judgment which makes it so. Nagarjuna, the Buddhist philosopher, makes a near identical claim in his own words, by seeing their lack of existence by nature, the thirst for conjoining with the good and the desire for disjoining from the difficult are destroyed and thus there is release. So Nagarjuna as well sees nature fundamentally as not having either good or bad or a value in joining or disjoining from it, but in our ability to separate ourselves from the desire to join or disjoin In there lies the release. So the aim of Buddhism and the aim of Pyrrhonism, ataraxia and Nirvana is achieved. It's firstly the same goal, that to be undisturbed, unperturbed by the ups and downs, the pains and desires of life, the good and the bad. It is achieved through suspending belief about about anything really, but specifically about value judgments, about the nature of reality, and that is predicated on a metaphysic third, that nature fundamentally does not have value, good or bad, inside of it. That is a very fascinating commonality on the soteriological side of things. Let us switch gears and talk for a second about Greek influences on Indian thought, staying with our characters of Pyro and Nagarjuna. Because of the high degree of similarity between Madhyamaka, which is the school of philosophy developed in the Mahayana school by Nagarjuna, and Pyronism, particularly via its surviving works of Sextus and Paracus, scholars such as Thomas McAvely and Matthew Neal suspect that Nagarjuna was influenced by the Greek Pyronist texts, imported later back into India. During the era when Nagarjuna was active, trade between India and the Roman Empire flourished, and Greek ideas became more and more influential in India. Now, although there is no direct proof that Nagarjuna had access two Greek Pyronist texts, according to the legend, Nagarjuna said that he was influenced by books inaccessible to other people, that he was approached by the Nagas, the semi-divine serpent figures that we see in the paintings of Nagarjuna, and that they invited him to their kingdom to see some texts that they thought would be of great interest to him. Nagarjuna studied these texts and brought them back with him to India. Matthew Neal's opinion on this anecdote with Nagarjuna is that Nagarjuna was a skilled diplomat, concealing novel doctrines in acceptable Buddhist discourse to conceal the doctrine's derivation from foreign wisdom traditions, namely that Nagarjuna, either himself or his students, by creating this legend of the texts coming from some mysterious place, did not have to admit explicitly that they were coming from Greek, Pyronistic sources. And aside from the points of comparison which we mentioned earlier, I'd like to show another two points of similarity. The first is that of the two-truths doctrine. McEverly in his comparative works brings our attention to a correspondence between the Pyronistic and Madhyamaka views about the nature of truth. Sextus Empiricus writes that Pyronism has two criteria when it comes to truth. The first is that by which we judge reality and unreality, the more objective barometer of truth. And the second form of truth is that which we use as a guide in our everyday life. A truth which does not need to be absolute, but a conventional truth. According to the conventional criteria of truth, nothing is either entirely true or false. Inductive statements based on direct observation of phenomena may be treated as either true or false for the purpose of making everyday practical decisions. The distinction, as Edward Cons has noted, is equivalent to the Magyamaka distinction between absolute truth, the quote, knowledge of the real as it is without any distortion, and truth, so called, truth as conventionally believed in common parlance. So, what you have in Pyrrhonism is absolute truth corresponding to a catalepsy and relative truth corresponding to a phantasia. The second thing which I'd like to point out here is the shared idea of dependent origination in Pyrrhonism and in Buddhism. Aeolus Jalius, the second century Roman author, described the Pyrrhonist view, which corresponds with the Buddhist view of dependent origination, as follows they say that appearances, which they call phantasie, are produced from all objects, not according to the nature of the objects themselves, but according to the condition of mind or body of those to whom the appearances come. Therefore, they call all things that affect men's senses relative things. This expression means that there is nothing at all that is self-dependent or which has its own power and nature, but that all things have reference to something else and seem to be such as their appearance while they are seen. As such, they are formed by our senses to whom they come, not by the things themselves from which they proceed. So the nature of things does not come from the object itself, but it is our perception applied to those objects which makes them seem to us the way they do. A phenomenological description of reality. Likewise, the ancient commentator on Plato's dialogue, Theotitis, says, The Pyrrhonists say that everything is relative in a different sense, according to which nothing is in itself, but everything is viewed relative to other things, Neither color, nor shape, nor sound, nor taste, nor smells, nor textures, nor any other object of perception, has any intrinsic character. This is remarkably similar to the famous words of the Buddhist Ha Sutra. In emptiness, there is no form, no sensation, no discrimination, no conditioning, and no awareness. There is no eye, no ear, nor nose, no tongue, no body, no mind. There is no form, no sound, no smell, no taste, no texture, no phenomena. There is no eye element, and so on, up to no mind element and also up to no element of mental awareness. This fabulous deconstruction of reality as it's perceived is something worthy of its own study, but over here, particularly fascinating because of these two ancient cultures that share this idea. And not only is the idea shared between them, but also the way that it's expressed is remarkably similar. The idea that not just is there no actual object There is only what we perceive of the object, but even the object that does the perceiving, i.e. the eye or the mind, is also just a matter of our own perception. In a thorough deconstruction, both Nagarjuna and Greek skepticism do away with any naive realist approach to reality. It is for these reasons, plus the fact that Pyro himself hung out in India for a year and a half with Alexander the Great and fraternized with the gymnosophists, the ancient Indian philosophers that leads scholars to believe that there was a direct line of influence from Indian Buddhism to Greek skepticism and Pyrrhonism and opened the possibility of a returning line of influence from Greek thought back to Nagarjuna's Mahadyamaka formulation of Mahayana Buddhism. Both philosophies argue against asserting any dogmatic assertions about any ultimate metaphysical reality behind our sense impressions, and against value judgments about our given reality, both as tactics to reach a state of tranquility. And both also make use of similar logical arguments against other philosophers in order to expose their contradictions, particularly against personhood. Both argue that existence is fundamentally impermanent, indeterminate, and undifferentiated, that reality ought to be approached with a twofold epistemology, one conventional and the other actual, and lastly, both argue against the metaphysics of independent origination and existence, instead, positing that everything is codependent, spontaneously arising, and contingent upon our perception, observation, and valuing of reality. The sources that I used to put together this presentation, which I urge you to look further into if you're interested in pursuing this topic, is firstly Christopher Beckwith's Greek Buddha, Pyro's Encounter with Early Buddhism in Central Asia. The next great work is Adrian Kuzminski's Pyronism, How the Ancient Greeks Reinvented Buddhism, Tomek McEverly's Tour de Force, The Shape of Ancient Thought, Everard Flintoff, Pyro and India, Pyronism at Manyamaka by Adrian Kuzminski, and all of the other sources I'm going to put in the description below go and check them out and have a read for yourself. Now, to keep things balanced, I do not want to give you the impression that this is a done and dusted case and that the evidence is being weighed up and the case is drawn, but you should know that this is an ongoing debate among scholars and for the sake of objectivity and transparency, if you would like to read up the other side of this debate, which I highly recommend as well because it is no good just reading one side of an argument, I would recommend reading neither Scythian nor Greek A response to Beckwith's Greek Buddha and Kosminski's Early Buddhism Reconsidered by Charles Goodman Early Pyrrhonism as a Sect of Buddhism A case study in the methodology of comparative philosophy by Monty Ransom-Johnson and Brett Schultz And Stephen Batchelor's review of Greek Buddha, Pyra's Encounter with Early Buddhism in Central Asia I would like to close with a quote from one of the scholars which I relied heavily upon here, Thomas McEvely. McEvely says quite nicely The records of caravans and maritime routes are like the philosophical skeleton of history the trails of oral discourse moving through communities, of texts copied from texts, and what they reveal is not a structure of parallel straight lines, one labelled Greece, the other Persian, another Indian, but a tangled web in which an element in one culture often leads to elements in another. So just to give a wrap up of what we covered here, this was quite a heavy one, I hope you were able to pay attention and follow through. If you need you can watch it again and take some notes, we began with an introduction questioning the very basic premises of East and West, and posited a few case examples, which may throw a monkey's wrench into that neat and tidy definition. We then launched into some historical philosophical characters who were part of the interaction between East and West thought, Pythagoras, Clearchus, Hegesius of Cyrene. We then moved into the main period speaking about the travels of Alexander the Great and the philosophers that he took with him and those that he encountered. One Secretus, the Gymnosephus, Colonus and Damdamus, Anaxarchus. And then finally we sank our teeth into the main character and the school of today's examination, which was Pyro and his schools of Pyronism and Skepticism. We spoke about the historical contact which they had and the conceptual comparison and we mentioned those scholars who dissent for good balance. Thank you for joining us here at Seekers of Unity. If you enjoyed, please give the video a thumbs up. Drop us down in the comments what you thought of the video. We'd love to interact with you and hear back your thoughts. This is hopefully more of a dialogue than just a lecture. And thank you for joining us. And as always, till next time, keep seeking.